Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to this latest talk. And this talk is Volume Visualization, How and Why. And this is a talk I gave in uh, April, just this past week, just the other day, rather, even, at the Society of Computed Body Tomography, the 31st annual meeting that took place in Charleston, South Carolina. And the talk was in Volume Visualization, and um, it's stuff we've covered before, but I thought I would share with you the presentation. And I was making the point that in terms of CT, whether it's liver, pancreas, kidneys, brain, whatever part of the body you're looking at, our goals are very simple. Lesion detection, definition of the extent of disease, and assist with planning, whether it's surgical planning or uh, as in pancreatic cancer surgery, or chemotherapy, or medical therapy, or embolization, whatever therapy is. And so visualization is the process that allows us to gather data, but then look at data and understand the data to be able to manipulate the data to optimize our treatment planning. Now, we make the point that so much of radiology these days tends to be RVUs per FTE and uh, turnaround time and uh, Nighthawks and everything else in the world, but it just is a kind of uh, lack of interest in quality. But when you think about it, when you do CT or MR or whatever you're doing, it's something really, it's radiology acid management. And what we're really doing is we're looking at mission critical data. And our mission is uh, healthcare. Our mission is doing a better job for the patient. And so you need to acquire the right data. You need the right protocols, the right timing technique, delivery of contrast, the right scanner. You need to then be able to get that information to the right person, the person who is going to treat that patient. Again, communication is something that's a challenge for all of us. You need to make sure also you get the right data to the person so the data is interpreted correctly, and that's where visualization also comes in. Uh, we need to make sure the person can receive the information. So whether it's on a cell phone these days or an iPhone or on a computer, they need to be able to receive the information, and it needs to be timely at the point of care. So that's what we're speaking about. Now let's get to volume visualization specifically. Well, in my concept, and this has been our concept for 20 years, it's really the future of CT. When you think about visualization, it's not a CT-specific or medical-specific uh, endeavor. It's really across all scientific disciplines. I have two really good quotes, and here's one. Scientific visualization is concerned with exploring data and information in a way to gain further understanding and insight. Okay. There are two good definitions I've read for scientific visualization, and here's one very much makes the point that visualization is concerned with exploring data to gain a deeper understanding of the data under investigation and it relies on our ability to visualize and all of radiology and indeed is our ability to see pathology to understand pathology or this definition by Gershon that visualization is the process of transforming information into a visual form allowing us to look at the information and this resulting display allows us to see features which are hidden in the data but nevertheless are needed for exploration and analysis. And that's just a perfect uh, definition of what 3D imaging is. We make the point that in axial slices, not only information is visible, it's not that it's not there. Obviously, a 3D image, if it's accurate, only shows you what the axial images have acquired. But the point is you may not be able to see it. It's hidden in the data. There's too much information. And so when we speak about CT, Going from 64 to 128 to 256 to 512 to 1024 to 2048, just getting more detectors is really not the issue. It's really in more information generated for study. And so when you think about how we do CT, you really have four choices. What do you look at? 
Well, everyone looks at axial CTs, and now you could, at the scanner, have NPRs and even some 3Ds generated by the technologists with predefined protocols. And there have been a number of articles now that show that even routine NPRs can indeed be very helpful, particularly since we're doing thin slices on most patients and we have isotropic data. But as we've always said, if you really want to do things to the max, you really need to do it interactively. So whether it's NPR or it's 3D imaging, we look at it as part of an interpretive process at the PAC system or workstation, whether it's a classic workstation or with a thin client. Again, the question is how much interactivity you want to be able to have. And again, our, our thought long term is that maximum interactivity is where we're going. Now, we make the point that I made a moment ago that the information from a CT is far more than just what is on the axial imaging because you may not see things unless you look at a volume. So I've shown this case before to you where I point to these two dots and you say what are those dots and who knows and could be vessel, could be tiny node, could almost be anything. But when you look at it within 3D, you recognize the left adrenal vein. It's a one millimeter or two millimeter structure. Can't really call it on a single axial slice, but again, when you take hundreds of slices and you build that model, it becomes very obvious. This is a critical landmark for laparoscopic nephrectomy. The point is that the information's there. It's the fact that you don't see it. Now, there have been several articles recently that have also made this point. An article in AJR by Parrish that diagnostic confidence and accuracy have increased with improvements in post-processing techniques and that the uh, literature supports the idea that volume CT uh, is uh, supplemented with the use of NPR and MIP in volume rendering and that these tools increase diagnostic confidence and sensitivity whether you're a beginner or you have a lot of experience and that volume CT reporting allows the radiologist to produce a few critical images in the best plane and orientation uh, that's most helpful to a referring clinician. And that is just a very nice definition of everything we've been saying. And simple examples, this patient has a pseudoaneurysm. You see blood within the heart. Okay, so you make the diagnosis, but look at it on the 3D. Look how much more easy it is to see. You see the patient has the aneurysm or pseudoaneurysm arising at the level of the prior anastomosis as a focal dissection in the ascending aorta. These two images, or this really one image, allows you to have all the information from 3,500 gated CT slices, but that information tells you everything, allowing you to make a better diagnosis, and again, explaining the information to the referring clinician where a picture is worth more than a thousand words. We also know that articles have shown, for example, in looking at this polyp in 2D and 3D, that the 3D visualization allows for increased accuracy. That 2D is less accurate than 3D. We also know that to be true in other applications, and we'll touch on some of those. We also look at things like the stomach, where you look at the gastric fundus, and you see the fold pattern, but nowhere as nicely as you see the fold pattern when you put that virtual scope inside the stomach. The visualization and detail is far more than you would expect. Or in this case, looking at the right vocal cord, medially placed, one thought was a tumor, it's a paralyzed vocal cord, but you can look down and see that paralyzed cord. Again, using different tools, the same colon tool allows us to look inside the airway as well. And here's just two more renderings 
that we could stretch out the airway or t target down the airway. Again, visualization is critical to understanding the process. In hip trauma, acetabular injuries, 20 years ago we showed that you can get about a 30% change in patient management. Nice example, dislocation. The surgeon wants to look at the acetabulum. Here it is in classic 3D, transparent volume rendering. Let's rotate it a bit. We see muscle, we see vessel, we see the acetabulum. We can look at that a little bit closer with the transparent projection, but if I optimize the visualization, look how nicely I can look inside the acetabular cup. So again, you can see very nice detail that there is no fracture there, but again, it's simply how you portray the information to optimize an understanding of the underlying pathology. Or in this case of a total hip replacement, you can very nicely see there's a, the metal creates some artifact. But if I render the images and use uh, some volume rendering, I'm able to really isolate that prosthesis and all of that artifact tends not to bother me. Now one of the nice things about volume rendering and everything I've shown you to this point has been volume rendering is that we can adjust the lighting model, we can accentuate different structures, we can optimize their visualization, and I show it to you in a simple format. Looking at this patient with SVC syndrome, look only at the patient's right arm, the antecubital fossa. You see some collaterals, but nothing really. But then when I adjust the lighting model and I enhance it, look at the patient's IV line that's in place. That IV line was there in the prior two images, you just didn't see it. So it's simply the lighting model that allows us to appreciate. So you understand why interactivity is critical because unless you're doing the rendering yourself, it's hard really to optimize uh, the entire process. And so we talk about going forward uh, that this integration of data acquisition and post-processing needs to be a very transparent system. We need the next generation PACs, or let's not call it PACs, the next generation interactivity environment. And it's an environment that provides all of this information. Now, in talking about post-processing, we comment before also that the key is knowing how to use the post-processing technique. There are a lot of different techniques and tools available. And you have to make sure, however, that when you have these, you learn how to use them. Now, again, what's an optimal technique? Well, it's easy to learn, has to be highly accurate, high sensitivity, high specificity. It needs to be able to be used by many different clients, radiologists, radiology technologists, referring physicians. And because we're all busy, and if you do enterprise-wide 3D, there are hundreds of people that need to be trained. It needs to be easy to learn, easy to master, and easy to teach or train people. Now, of course, in saying that, when all is said and done, the best rendering technique is one that somebody will use. The best techniques, the best processing, the best workstation, if people are unwilling to use it, just is not of any value. Nothing very brilliant there. Now, rendering techniques. The rendering technique we've commented before is really uh, what creates the 3D quality, assuming you have a good data set. And when we talk about rendering techniques, we talk about the computer algorithm that transforms axial images into images in other planes, including 3D images. Now, if we look at the simplest thing, what's the most common thing people use? It's multiplanar reconstruction. And typically, coronal and sagittal are the ones people do, and the ones that are very easy to do now, even on pre-processed batches at the workstation or at the scanner. Quality of NPR is dependent on the initial data sets. 
Isotropic data is obviously ideal. And many people do use this routinely in practice and it's becoming more and closer to standard of care. The way you can tell it's becoming standard of care is you can't bill for it any longer. Uh, good example, looks like maybe an adrenal mass or a renal mass, a pancreatic mass, but it's an adrenal mass that's fat in the lesion. It's a myelipoma axial imaging, but better able to appreciate very nicely on the coronal display. I make the point of showing you the volume rendering of the same case to show you that the interrelationships, the three-dimensional visualizations, are better seen on the volume rendering than the routine MPR because with volume rendering you have more depth, you have more lighting models, and it's easier to really appreciate in 3D individual structures. Or this case of a cystic mucinous tumor right lower quadrant, nicely shown on the coronal display and a bit nicer shown on the 3D volume rendering because now we really could bring in all of the vessels face to face. And whether it's volume rendering with MIP, whether it's volume rendering uh, uh, with classic volume rendering, again, uh, this technique works very nicely as well. Now, another big difference between, let's say, a 3D map with volume rendering and MPR is that structures that run long distances, on MPR you just can't get them in a single image unless you have a very thick slab. So for example, in this case of a large prostate and you want to look at the ureters, you see the renal pelvises, but you'd have to look at a slab of images. And typically we talk about sliding slabs or these MPR volumes. On 3D, however, with volume rendering, we can get the entire coursing caliber of the ureter, the enlarged prostate gland, the elevated bladder in one visualization. And that indeed is a very big advantage. Now in saying that, I guess what I could do in this case is I could have traced the ureter with a curved planar reconstruction and that would have been helpful. And curved planar reconstruction, so one of the things that is under the NPR umbrella, but something that's becoming much more important these days, particularly in cardiac imaging, though it's used in vascular imaging, is used to look at the pancreatic duct. Uh, but it really is ideal for structures that come in and out of plane that are kind of not following a straight line. And so a classic would be the coronary arteries. And you can see very nicely as you go from the right coronary and you pull it out and you stretch it out, very nice visualization of the right coronary artery. You can see this in a stent. Here's a patient with a stent in the right coronary artery. You want to look down the stent. You want to look to see if the stent's patent. And now you have the vessel tracking along the course of the stent and you get beautiful visualization of the patency of that stent. Here it is in one set of projections. Here it is in another set of projections. And then we rotate this center line around 360 degrees to so have multiple visualizations. And so this curved planar is ideal in this scenario. Similarly, in this case with patient with non-calcified plaque, it is also ideal. Uh, so again, curved planar reconstruction really has sort of put MPR into overdrive. It's a critical thing, particularly in cardiac imaging, but again, uh, it can be done automatically. The computers are much uh, easier at doing this process now. In the scenario of this patient, you simply pick two points on the coronary. The computer calculates the center line and gives you the vessel like a string of spaghetti. So again, uh, very nice ideal technique. Now, 
once you get past MPR, you go into the classic rendering techniques. And the two that we speak about are volume rendering and MIP. So let me just start on volume rendering and then we'll take just a two minute break. So we talk about volume rendering as being a probabilistic uh, classification. It's a percentage classification technique. The key thing about volume rendering is that you can show multiple tissue types from soft tissue to bone to skin to vessel. It's very accurate because every voxel in the volume is identified and used in the final image. We can adjust how we look at the image. We can increase the transparency or opacity to see skin or see through skin. It takes a little bit of time to learn. It takes more user interactivity. Uh, one negative is you have a lot of flexibility. That's also the positive, of course. But anything with lots of flexibility can potentially lead to errors. And I'll just show you a simple example. Here's a foot and we go from skin to uh, tendons to bone. Or here I'll show you tendons. And again, you can see how we can accentuate. We made the skin transparent, the tendons and muscle opaque, and the bone is kind of hidden. And then if I put the skin back on by making the skin opaque, you'll see the skin. And whether it's the foot or it's the hand, you can see transparency versus opacity. But with volume rendering, the beauty is you can get everything. You can get the vessels, you can see the inflammation, the third digit, uh, and again, go backwards toward the skin. So how we look at things, uh, we have lots of options. And basically, we talk about CT as a physical exam because in this patient with a puncture wound, you see the bandage, you see the uh, puncture, you see it with lighting models very nicely and then we'll make the skin transparent and we'll look down through the muscle and look at the patient's axillary artery and brachial artery, there's no injury. So with that, that gives you a pretty good feel of the first part of my talk and let's take a five minute break and let's pick it up from here. Thanks very much.